If you have your Bibles, please open in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We are reaching the end of this gospel here. It's been a joy and convicting time for me as I study through. I think there's parts of this passage, and really every time I get to preach, uh, that's convicting to my own heart. And I hope that is the same for you as well. Mark chapter 12. This evening, we're going to go from verse 38 to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 12, verse 38 to 44. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who like, to, who like, who like respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two smaller, two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Father God, Lord, as we look through this text, may it pierce our hearts and humble us so that the pride that we tend to have is in ourselves. Lord, may we have a greater affection for those that are needy as well. As we look to this text, may we, um, it can be so easy to look upon other people and other religious groups and especially false religious groups and think, how could they live this way without looking at our own hearts, Lord? Lord, humble us first. Cause us to be convicted by your word, and be transformed to the image of your son. Thank you for this time that we have. In your son's name I pray. Amen. If there's one thing that you would know about me personally is that I tend to get infuriated when it comes to false teachers. In my life, I have uh, had people try to make me join a cult. I've been tricked into a cult once in my life. Uh, this is younger in my faith. I didn't really have the discernment to know what the difference between a true religion and a false religion. So it made me, and I'm, you know, by God's grace, I was able to be spared from, being, from joining a cult. But there's something about cults that gets me upset because at the heart of what they do is that they want to exploit people. I came across this book by a man named Charles uh, Charles Chinqui. He is a former priest back in the time when Abraham Lincoln was around. He was a Canadian man. He wrote this, it's almost like an autobiography about his encounter with a Catholic priest. In this particular book that he wrote, he had this, he wrote this chapter titled The Priest, Purgatory, and the Poor Widow's Cow. And in this, he was describing not long after his father passed away, a priest came to visit him. He's retelling the story 
um, from just his own perspective as a child, when the priest came and he was almost like kind of like hiding in a different room, but he was listening in and watching and seeing what's going on. And he documents this, and this is what he, he said between the interaction between this priest and his own mother. He writes, Madam, there's something due for the prayers which have been sung and services which you requested to be offered for the repose of your husband's soul. I will be very much obliged to you if you pay me that little debt. The mother answered, my husband left me nothing but debt. I have only the work of my own hands to produce a living for my three children, the eldest of whom is before you. For little orphan's sake, it's not for mine. Do not take from us the little that is left. The priest says, but madam, you do not reflect. Your husband died suddenly and without any preparation. He is therefore in the flames of purgatory. If you want him to be delivered, you must necessarily unite your personal sacrifices to the prayers of the church and the masses which we offer. She responds, as I said, my husband has left me absolutely without means, and it is impossible for me to give you any money. But madam, your husband was for a long time the only notary of Malbay. He surely must have made much money. I can scarcely think that he has left you without any means to help him now that his desolation sufferings are far greater than yours. My husband did indeed coin much money, but he spent still more. Thanks to God, we have not been in want while he lived, but lately he got this house built, and what is still due on it makes me fear that I will lose it. He was brought a piece of land not long ago, only half of which is paid, and I will therefore probably not be able to keep it. Hence, I may soon, with my poor orphans, be deprived of everything that is left us. In the meantime, I hope, sir, that you are not a man to take away from our last piece of bread. But, but madam, the, the masses offer for the rest of your husband's soul must be paid for. And he responds, my, my mother covered her face with a handkerchief and wept. And he goes on to describe how he was angry and upset. He said, my hands were clenched as if ready to strike. All my muscles trembled. My teeth chattered as if from intense cold. My greatest sorrow was my weakness in the presence of that big man and my not being able to send him away from our house and driving him far from my mother. I felt inclined to say to him, are you not ashamed, you who are so rich, to come to take away the last piece of bread from our mouths? But my physical and moral strength were not sufficient to accomplish the task before me. And I was filled with regret and disappointment. After a long silence, my mother raised her eyes, reddened with tears, toward the priest and said, Sir, you see that cow in the meadows not far from our house? Her milk and the butter made from it form the principal part of my child's food. I hope you will not take her away from us. If, however, such a sacrifice must be made to deliver my poor husband's soul from purgatory, take her as payment for the masses to be offered to extinguish those devouring flames. The priest instantly arose, saying, Very well, madam, and went out. 
he goes on to describe and seeing this priest leave the house. There was the gate, and then there was a cow, and he was hoping that the priest would just go to the gate, open and leave. Instead, he walked towards the cow and took the cow home. And then the boy said, Oh, my mother, he is taking our cow away. What will become of us? My mother also cried out of grief as she saw the priest taking away the only means heaven had left her to feed her children. Throwing myself into her, into her arms, I asked, Why have you given away our cow? What will become of us? We shall surely die of hunger. This is her response. Dear child, I did not think the priest would be so cruel as to take away the last resource which God had left us. And her response after this was to pray for this priest who was just so unmerciful, unlike the God of Scripture. See, when we think about all of these false religions throughout the world, they have one thing in common, and that is to exploit the weak with the intention to try to harm other people. They will create a system to try to get people to be oppressed. And when we see the gospel of Mark, we understand that Jesus is confronting these individuals. He's going against the entire religion system because they are no longer worshipers of God, but instead they are, these are people that seek to harm other people. In this context here, this is Passover. This is a this is a Passion Week, and this is the last time Jesus is going to talk in the in the in, the, in front of the masses about the religious system, how corrupt they are. You remember last week we talked about how he, he's challenging the priests and the, the scribes about who David is. He, they, they didn't seem to understand that Dave, that the son of David is going to be the Messiah, and not only that, but he's, he's divine as well. And then before that, he, uh, the scribe asked Jesus to try to trick him by asking him, what is the greatest commandment? And he, the scribe, surprised everyone. We said, you have to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love others as yourself. And now, Jesus continues on explaining and really exploiting these people that love to exploit other people. He's going to expose this religious group, and he's going to do it in two ways. First, he's going to show the pride, uh, the public pride that these people uh, just kind of display. And later, he's going to also show the public scams. Those are just our two outlines for us this evening, the public pride and then public scams. Look with me in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who want to walk around in long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplace, in best seats in the synagogues, in places of honors, at banquets, who devour widows, and, appear, and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus here is just continuing on what he's teaching, and he's telling the people to, be, to beware of these scribes. This word beware here is a very strong word. It's a very tough language. You think, is watch out. This shows up multiple times. Paul uses this in the book of Philippians, beware of the dogs, and talks of, and talk, and describing the false religious that, that he was dealing with, the Judaizers. Here, Jesus is using the same word and telling people to beware of the scribes. Watch out for them, because these individuals love to put themselves in prominent places. He first described these individuals as they love to walk around in long robes. 
And it seems weird for us because we don't walk in long, long rows. But back then, I think they got this idea from Numbers chapter 15. There was a priestly garment that the priests were supposed to wear. And it was designed so, so that people could identify who are the Levites, who are the priests, who should we go to to offer our sacrifices, who can go to to help us to be the mediator between man and God. That's why they stood out. It wasn't because they wanted to stand out for the sake of standing out, but they stand so that people knew where to go if they want to have a right relationship with the Lord. And that was right. They were supposed to, st- uh, they were, God told them to dress this, this way, and they did it so that they can find a way to, to be made right with the Lord. But as time progressed, they kind of altered the, the, the attire because their soul was to become twisted. They, they added the, the long robes, and the long robes had these tassels at the end. And that wasn't the original ones as well, but then they, in, according to extra biblical literature, those, those little tassels at the end became longer and longer. As if, it's almost like they're like dragging this giant robe around so that people can just kind of step away knowing that, oh, these are the holy individuals. They love to parade around to show off how great they are. In our modern day, I don't think we wear these type of long robes, but I think we tend to look, we want to, at least religious people, it seems like, they either want to dress in very expensive clothing or they like to dress like the culture. In both places, there's a sense of a lack of modesty because they want people to see them as unique individuals. There's a Instagram uh, account that I follow called Preachers and Sneakers. And it's funny because it's almost like a parody uh, because they point, they show you all of these different basically prosperity preachers and how much uh, their clothing costs. They'll say their shoe here is $20,000 or their their jackets are are several million dollars and there are all these limited edition clothing. And that's to show us as a way, really exposing them as these guys, they're using... Christ and these people to fuel their lifestyle. And these individuals, they like to wear these long robes here in the Pharisees. They dress this way because they want people to look at them and revere them. They love to show off. They love other people to look at them and, and look at them with a sense of awe. Notice it says, and want respectful greetings. They want people to use their titles. Usually some of the titles are things like, um, like leader or father so-and-so or rabbi or, or greatness. They would like to use these terms or they, want, they expect people to call them a certain way. And false teachers love to elevate their titles. They love to po- uh, brag about what they know or, what they, uh, or, or their accomplishments. They want people to address them in a particular way to show that they are better than them, that they know more than you. It forces people to address them in a unique way so that they can, they can make the other people feel humbled while they, as they elevate themselves. And this is not right because these religious people are supposed to decrease and increase God. But instead, they want, they want respectful greetings in these marketplaces. They desire that notoriety and titles because they love those respectful greetings. And notice this, they continue on, it says that they, and the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor and at banquets. Usually when it's the best seats here, it's like if you're thinking about going to a home or of some famous individual, the person on the, le- the seat on the left or the right of the host is usually the best seat because 
you're in the presence of the owner of that place. So the priests, or <clears throat> the Levitical priests at this time, or the Judaism at the time of Jesus' time, they just love sitting with the host. Because not only that they get to sit next to someone that's influential, but they can, other people can see them say, oh yeah, see, look, that person has gained favor with the host. And usually that host is probably someone very wealthy. They love being in those places. They love to be the center of attention. And pride demands attention from other people. It's always centered around them. They want to steal glory from God. And it says here that they love places of honor at banquets. Again, this is just basically another way of saying they just love special treatment. When I was in seminary, one of the things that uh, my professors told us is that when you go anywhere, never use your title as a way to get discounts. Don't go into some car place or some electronic place, especially people in the church, and say, well, I'm your pastor, so you know, can you uh, give me a discount on this? Because that makes it seem as though that title is, is some sort of special membership, and that people need to give you something. He, said, he told us not to do those things. Just try your best. Just pay exactly. If people offer it, then okay, but never demand it. If people give it to you, see it as a gift from the Lord, but never expect that from people. And I think these Pharisees got it backwards in that they think that because they are working in the temple, because they have all this money and wealth, that they can lord it over those that are supporting them. Notice also it says, who devour widows' houses. We see this as, and we will look at it a little bit more as we get to the end of this chapter, but they love to devour widows' homes, meaning that they like to take away. There's an extra biblical literature that basically documented every trial and legal case that the Jewish people did at the time, and sometimes they would, you know, especially widows that are desperate and vulnerable, the priests would come and they'll say, okay, what's going on? How can we help you? And then they'll tell them what's going on and like, well, tell me your estate. How much do you own? And through their just their very clever and cunning way, they would end up giving their estate to the priests. And then the widows would be stunned. They thought that these priests were here to help them, but instead they lost all their properties. They lost everything because they were able to use these, the legal system to their advantage to exploit those that are desperate and, and, des, and, and desperate and destitute. But yet the Bible speaks the opposite, that there is a special care that we should have for widows. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion is this, is that we care, we visit orphans and we care for widows. And I can't help but think about just even our own lives. There are widows in this church, and I think generally speaking, we do care for them. But I think we can do a better job at it. There are people in this church that are hurting and then Sometimes we just overlook them because we don't know them, or we don't know them as well. But yet, as Christians, what makes us stand out is that we love those, especially in the church, that are widows, that, that are people that are lonely. We want to be for them because they are our church family. And here, these religious people, though they have all this knowledge and they kind of pry, uh, you know, prounce around looking a particular way, we can look at them and judge these religious people and think we're not like them. But in a lot of ways, we can be if we are devoid of loving God. If we don't love God, but yet we know all, this thing, all of these things about God, it makes our religion useless. 
these religious leaders at the time, they prided themselves in what they know about God and what they do in terms of service, but what they lacked is a love for God and other people. And that's why I think early on when they were challenging Jesus, they were surprised by this because the scribes know what the greatest commandment is. They know that you have to love God and love other people, but in their actions, they fail to live up to that standard. But they're not aware of it, and I wonder if we're aware of it. We can say that that's the greatest commandment, but are we, in our own hearts, true, do we truly love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and do we love our neighbors as ourselves? And some of the neighbors, even in the context of the church, are widows. And we need to make a special effort to care for them because that, that is how our Lord will expect of us. Continuing on in verse 40, it says, And for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These are religious people, so sometimes when they're praying, they will use a lot of big words or they'll pray for a very long time because they want other people to think that they are very spiritual. It's really a smokescreen. It's really just a way to distract them. It, because this will make people think, oh, if they can pray like that, then they must be holy. If they pray like that, they must be a very righteous individual. But it's, it's a fake fellowship with the Lord. Prayer is, is, is communion, communion with God. You should want to pray, not because um, you have to pray, but you pray because you want to. You desire him. You desire to commune with him. These religious leaders, they were willing to publicly show off their prayers just to get people to not think that, you know, to try to throw off the scent that they're actually exploiting other people. And even scripture tells us that when we pray, we should go somewhere, you know, quiet and alone as we commune with the Lord. But there is something to be said about praying in public. It's not that you can't pray in public. In fact, we in our church, uh, every Sunday, we have a public, we open our worship service with, with a public prayer. But I think the way that we pray as elders and even other Christians how they should pray in public should be exactly how they pray in private. Um, you shouldn't pray in public with, uh, with, in ways that you would never actually pray in private. Because if you do that, that's just really trying to show off what you know and uh, your oratory skills or your vocabulary. And that's not pleasing to the Lord. The Lord doesn't want you to pray empty prayers. When you pray to the Lord, it must be from the outflow of the heart. You love the Lord so you commune with him. You adore him. You confess your sins and you pray thanksgiving. You make supplication. You pray for other people. It's out of that love of communing with the God that we pray. And if we have opportunity to pray in public, it shouldn't be that much different than the way that we pray in private. These religious leaders at the time when they prayed, they obviously only prayed in public because in their private lives, they were hurting other people. This is why at the end of this section here, Jesus said, these will receive greater condemnation. There's stricter judgment for leaders because they should know better. They should know better. Hell is hotter for false teachers. And those who fail because they have no true relationship with God. False teachers want to run and want to run and ruin the lives of everyone around them. And their conscience are seared. You don't realize that their religion is false. They could do all the right things, say the right things, pray the right things, wear the right things, but yet not be right with God. And again, looking at our own hearts, are we like the religious leaders here? 
do we only dress up for church because we want other people to think of us a certain way, but throughout the week we dress differently? Do we want respectful greetings because we want people to acknowledge our accomplishments here in the church? Do we always prefer our own needs before other people? Do we want the best seats? Do we want the places of honor? These things, although we don't have, like, you know, special places for, like, I mean, you guys are sitting all the way in the back. Usually, the, like, the front row is the best seats, but you guys are sitting in the back. So it could be true humility or false humility. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But you understand that the, the Lord sees our heart. You can do so many things for God, but yet you can be not right with the Lord. And these, these religious leaders, they have this public pride. Second, look at public scams or public exploits. Verse 41 and he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury. And many people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which mount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more money than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put out their surplus, out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. When I was a younger believer, I used to interpret this section to mean this is why we need to give more to the church. We need to give to the we hurt, just like this widow here. But as I was studying this passage in the context of this section, I realized that's actually not what this, chap- this section is about. Oftentimes, and not even a lot of commentators would use this to describe someone that or they'll apply it to us in the sense of, like, see, this is why we need to give more to the church, or this is why we need to give our money away. We need to give all, everything, just like this widow here. But I don't think that's the case. Because when you look at this section, there, Jesus is not saying anything about the rich people and the poor. He's not praising the rich or condemning the rich. He's also not praising the widow or condemning the widow either. He's just stating the scene to show us just how corrupted this religious system has become. He said he's sitting opposite it. He's watching these, uh, all this happen, and he's telling them, just observe what's going on here. He said that they're putting some, the rich people put a large sum of money in this treasury. And this treasure, just think of it as like a, like a giant ice cream cone that when people threw their coins, it would just kind of spiral in. And depending on the coin, the size of the coin, the type of coin, it will make a certain noise once the money goes in. So if it's like a really big coin, it'll make a loud noise. If it's a little tiny penny, it'll make a lesser point, a lesser noise. In fact, some people at the time, just through some, some historical writings, said that there would be trumpets, people with trumpets nearby, and when they would throw money, they would blow the trumpet. Especially people throw a large amount of money. It almost sounds like a casino, except you're not getting money, you're like putting in money. Uh, and the house always wins, in a sense. So they're throwing all this money in. They hear all the clanging, and people are blowing the trumpet. They say, look, look, this person deposited $10,000 or $20,000 so that everyone knows that this person gave this amount of, mo- amount of money. And then there's now this widow here. And based on just, um, just the understanding of how the temple was probably structured, she was probably, Jesus was probably watching them in either the court of the Gentiles or the court of the ladies, uh, there's, like, places that's only exclusive for Gentiles. She could be one of the two places. There's, like, 13 of these stations all around the temple. And she sees, he sees this poor widow put in two, it says here, like, 
like two cents, I think, or in the NASB uses two copper coins, which amounts to a cent. This is actually a translation of what it actually is. It's, I think they're trying to figure out, because it's, it's the word like uh, lepta and quadrants, and that's not words that we would use. Uh, but the idea here, and in terms of your English translation, why is small copper coins? It's this idea that it's like the smallest coin that she can possibly give. She gave two of the smallest coins, so if she you know, threw it in there, it would just make this little light, bing. And Jesus is saying, look at this lady who's giving all that she has. And he's calling his disciples and saying, truly I said to you, the, the poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury, or they, the rich people, put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. He's not describing and praising the poor widow here. He's actually telling us, this, look at this poor victim here. All the people in the middle class and upper class are giving and they're giving and they go home and they're perfectly fine. But this poor widow, this poor widow here is giving all that she, has lived, that she can live on. The implication in this text is that this lady is going to die. She's giving all the money that she has and there's nothing left for her which is an, the opposite of what the religious system at the time, especially for Jews, they understand that they were supposed to take care of the widows. And I mean, when we look at the book of Ruth, the reason why Boaz was such a unique figure was because he understood what God expected for those that are sojourners, those that are widows, that you're supposed to take care of them. That's why he let, in his field, he gave, he gave all the outer rims to all the poor people because he knew what God expected. That's why God blessed them, even in time of the judges. In time of the judges, everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes, and only this one individual, Boaz, actually cared for the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners. And yet this religious group here in Jesus' time have so distorted God's word that they don't care about the widow. What was supposed to happen was that the religious people cared, took money and gave it to the widow, gave it to her because she is in desperate need. But instead, they're collecting all of their money for their own gain. How do we know this? Because if you look at chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. These were talking about the temple here. The disciple was kind of like not really bright seeing all of what's going on. He's like, look how nice the temple is. Like Jesus just showed them this incident with the widow and all the rich people. And the disciples' response is, look how nice this building is. Look how nice this temple is. Look at all these wonderful Things that, all these wonderful stones. Yet Jesus responds, Do you see these great buildings? Not one of these stones will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This will happen in 70 AD in the book of Hebrews, actually. Uh, even at that time, when the book of Hebrews was written, the temple has not been destroyed just yet. But eventually it will. But back to our text here. This is a story of this, this, of this very sad story of this lady, basically the going to the last moments of her life. In the Old Testament, it speaks very explicitly about why they need to care for the widows because God cares about those that are hurting. God cares about those that are in need. And again, checking our own hearts, do we have the same care for those that are widows? Do we care about those in the church or outside the church that are hurting? If we we claim to be followers of Christ, if we claim that we love Christ, and we see other people in need and choose not to care for them, then what is the use of our faith? And that's what First John talks about, right? 
1 John chapter 3, verses 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, there's a religious group of people here at the time. They did not have a love for God. That is why they did not care for the widow. They looked at the people that gave us the huge amount. Some day, those were the people they wanted to pander to. But this poor little woman with her, her little two pennies, yeah, whatever. That's just extra. It's not that important. They cared more about lining up their pockets than to care for those that are in need. They care about their own comfort than those that are crying out in pain. Jesus doesn't condone. Again, he's not saying here that you need to be like this widow that give and then die. And he's not saying, like, he's not praising rich people either. He's just stating the reality of what's going on in front of them. Now, I do want to, at this point here, kind of like, uh, pull us aside, talk about why, then why do we give to the church? What's the difference between what this religious group is doing, what the church is doing? Because I know in this church, and every time we do a church family meeting, you see the numbers that we have, and the question of why, what are we doing with the money? And there is some things that we are thinking through, but the whole point of why we have so much money is really, it allows us here to do ministry. It allows us to support the staff here, allows us to support um, all the different ministry that goes on here at the church. We support missionaries all over the world. And again, we're not trying to get money for the sake of gaining wealth. But we're just trying to be wise with how we use the money for the sake of the gospel. Um, we have missionaries that we support. And, you know, uh, you know we, we have the, in the back, I think in the back um, hallway there, we have these missionary cards. And you can see what their goal is. Their goal is to try to make and uh, win people to Christ. Oftentimes, they're in opposition to different religious groups that try to exploit other people. Uh, they're trying to deliver those individuals from the bondage of false religion into the, into the gospel that, that will truly set them free. We use the money here to support the ministry here as well as the missionaries abroad. Now, if you give to the church, you shouldn't give because you feel like, I need to give for the sake of giving. I mean, that's why Paul tells us to give with a cheerful heart. You should want to partner with the Lord in supporting the church here or the missionaries because you want the gospel to be made known. And if you don't want to support the church in that way, uh, hopefully you find another church that you can support, another church that can do what you believe what's best. Because in all honesty, and the elders here, we understand, and I think all of us understand too, that God owns everything. He owns all of us. He owns everything that we own because he owns everything. So he doesn't really need your money. But again, money is just a way for, as a tool for us to win people to Christ. And here, and going back to text, when you see these religious people, they want money for the sake of their own comfort and to build their own kingdoms. That's not what we are trying to do here at SFBC. That's not what all of our missionaries are trying to do. We're not trying to build our own kingdom. We're trying to help advance the gospel and build the kingdom of God in terms of bringing people to saving faith. But we know that the resource is just a means for that. In fact, I, th I think that's why a qualification of elders is that they're not a lover of money because they trust people that love money. They, they trust money more than they trust the Lord. But I think when we think about how we should think about money, this is not the, uh, this is not the example here. Like, if you are in desperate need and you're thinking, should I give to the church versus supporting my family, and you're, like, in desperate need, just keep the money. It's perfectly fine. 
it's totally fine because we know that God is taking care of you through that. And the Lord will take care of everything, everyone else. Don't worry. If you don't just give with a, with a joyful heart. And we're not, you know, again, we're not, we don't care how much you give because we care about more your heart attitude behind it. Here, going back to text, we should be individuals that see the people that are in need. And we're really trying to see the contrast here, even similarity, if we have similarities between these, those religious systems to repent of them, but, but also see that these religious people didn't care about those that are afflicted those that are in need, but as Christians, if we claim to, be, claim to be people who love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, then we need to love others the way Christ expects us to love. So what looks, so when we look back again, there's public pride and public scams, and I hope that that's, that doesn't define our life, that when we look at our lives, that we don't want to draw attention to ourselves, that all that we do is trying to point people to Christ, Whatever ministry you're part of, whatever you own, that whatever you do, you do it in a way that's supposed to give glory to God. And then and when we look at public scams and public, you know, hurting other people, that we are not prone to have a heart hardened to those that are in need. Because it's very easy for us as Christians to just say the right things, but we're called to love both in terms of deed and in truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. And it's a reminder for us on why um, we need to really check our own hearts. It's, again, easy for us to look at these religious leaders then and not see ourselves in it. But it's so tempting for us to, to think very highly of ourselves. Lord, keep us humble. Keep us always truly in love with who you are and to love others with a genuine heart that only comes from loving you, Lord. Lord, thank you for the time in your word and your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, now this is a time we'll go to our discussion groups. Now, before we break into groups, I do want to just kind of help us think a little bit more about why we have discussion groups. I know there's a lot of you that are new here, and you might think this is just part of the program. And in a sense, that is true. That is what we usually do after the preaching. But there's more than that, because when we do discussion groups, it's, it's supposed to be a way for us to connect ourselves with a church body. I know some of you are new and you're maybe just checking us out and you're trying to figure out which church to join. And the discussion groups is really just a gateway for that. It's for you to build relationships with people in your group, uh, to get to know each other, to talk about the message, to pray for each other. And it really, this is really a time for you to, to kind of build that community that I think all of us really want. Uh, we know that we can't have all the fellowship time on Sundays and Fridays but we hope that you build these relationships now and perhaps you guys can talk throughout the week. Uh, you guys can call each other or just have a meal, like, uh, lunch or dinner or something sometimes a week. Just kind of build a relationship with each other because that's what the Christian life is about. Christianity is not only on you know, certain days that we meet in the building, but that this, the, 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 this physical building that we have where we meet people is really just an opportunity for us to get to know each other in hopes that we can build godly relationships to encourage one another to grow in Christ-likeness. So that's what discussion groups are for. Um, and again, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a perfect idea or concept, but it is just one way in which we think that would be best for us to help build um, the fellowship together and for you to build connections with each other to encourage each other to be more like Christ. Does that make sense in terms of why we have discussion groups? Uh, because I think sometimes we think that's just, again, this is not just the next thing that we do, uh, but there's reason behind it. It's that we want all of us to kind of grow uh, in, in fellowship and in, in unity with each other as well. So 
With that said, there's two questions that, uh, that we have for us. Um, if you guys are able to discuss it, that's uh, the two questions. Uh, okay, I guess I can read them out to you. Okay. So the two questions is, uh, that I have for, uh, you know, for our discussion group this evening. The first question is this. How can I check myself um, when it comes to spiritual pride? And the second question is, in what ways can I be ministering to those that are in need? There's two questions. First question is just how can I uh, guard myself from spiritual pride or check myself from spiritual pride? And second question, in what ways can I be ministering to those that are in need? And what think practically. How can you um, not only know the truth, but also show that you, you know the truth through the way that you live?